Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Are we good to go here, people? I like your sleds. Hey. You ready? You, we've know. done this before. We've done we? it like two or three times. I'm yeah. just hot, you know? Yeah, That's yeah, why yeah. I took my jumper off. I swear I walked here. Your what? Sweater. We call them jumpers over there. I don't know why. Do we jump? And that is Stuart Stop. You're listening to On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Guy Adami and Danny Moses, my co-hosts. You know them. Stuart Stop is the CEO founder of Current. Some On the Tape listeners might have heard a conversation that I had with Stuart, I think about a month and a half ago. We were talking markets. We were talking consumer. We were talking a whole heck of a lot of stuff. In his past life, though, Stuart was a macro trader, ran some FX trading groups at some big banks all over the world. So we thought this would be a good time, Guy Adami. We're in studio here to have the brilliant market mind of Stuart Stock. I'm fired up that he's here. And he was just saying that he had to take his jumper off because he's hot. Apparently, he must have taken the apple and the pear's to this floor instead of the lift. We did. We took the apples and pear stairs. And uh, I'll give you a lady a Godiva later. <laughs> that's Cockney English. I know. And then he, oh, and you then know he, this. Well, then he queued up to come in here. The queued up thing. That's just straight British shit. But I was giving you some Cockney English slang as we get started here on the tape. We usually kind of hit the markets kind of hard here, Stuart, and it's been a volatile few months, to say the least. I think that of late, really since we had Fed Chair Powell confirm that in the meeting next week that they were raised 50 basis points, when did he do that? Like a week, two weeks ago or something? The stock market started careening. It's going to be the first 50 basis point rise since May of 2000. Where were you, Stuart, in May of 2000? I was trading foreign exchange. I was a forwards trader. I joined IBS in 99. But then I got sold as an asset to Bank of New York, Mellon, London. As an asset, like a CIA asset, like an operative asset, homeland asset shit, or no? You could imagine the intrinsic value of a pimply one year out of grad school, Stuart Sop. To be To be honest, he could be a plant. His dad, your dad was in the Royal Air Force, right? Moved around all over the world. Can I say that? Or you have to kill me? <laughs> and we were based in Hereford. That's all Were I'm you guys say. like the Americans? Is that what was going on here? <laughs> That's so cool. Now, what I would say is this. So you started... You cut your teeth in the late 90s, early aughts. Is that what people say? Yeah, what I don't say. even think I've ever said that. In my, the noughties. Back then, foreign exchange didn't move. If you had a 1% currency move over a couple of days, you were like high-fiving each other. Now we see literally 3% moves in the course of hours in all different developed nation currencies. It's staggering to me how much things move today. What does that say to you? Yeah, I think back in those days, bid offer spreads were wider too, and there was less capitalization of the markets, and they weren't automated. So that was the beginning of automation. And so it's got to its nth degree. One of the reasons why I left in 2014 was because of that. You have no edge, right? There's no edge in that market. And in 2008, I was obviously in that crisis. I was running foreign exchange at Citibank out of Singapore. That was fun as well, being at Ground Zero, the world's biggest bank. Foreign exchange very often acts as the asset class of last resort. So when everything else is broken, liquidity is gone in whatever you're trading, bonds, commodities, equities, people go, all right, wh what's correlated to the thing that's moving? Right now, it's the dollar. They're probably selling euro dollar. And so that is creating 
exceptional volatility in currencies that typically are trade or corporate driven in, in normal times. So Stuart, just looking, you were at Morgan Stanley 2009 to 14, ran FX there. City, as you mentioned, 2008, FX there in Singapore. And then Deutsche Bank, I guess, trading in Australia 2005 to 2008. So you've seen a lot of stuff, as you just said. And I think people are searching for now, it's DXY. Like, what is this thing? And some people will think to themselves, oh, strong dollar is good. Well, it's good for U.S. consumer buying things. But if you're a leveraged trader anywhere, or you have any of these leveraged trades on anywhere, to try to understand that, I think, takes a whole nother level. And if you could try to maybe dumb it down a little bit for people that see the yen on its way to 150 from 130 and what that really means with all these carry trades without getting too deep in the weeds, just those type of things that are out there. I don't think people are ready to experience what that might look like as far as volatility. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We have the system, the petrodollar system, that really needs it to go down and leverage to increase and the numbers to keep going and the debt to increase for everything to be good. The dollar is a wrecking ball when we delever. And of course, the Fed are delevering on purpose, right? Power came out two weeks ago, said 50 bips, let's go. And everyone else, you've seen Rick's Bank went 25. Japan last night, like, okay, maybe nothing. And so you're seeing everyone creep behind the Fed. The Fed need to do 50. They need to lead. You may see some esoteric, you know, maybe New Zealand. That's not a country, right? It's just sheep. So <laughs> I think our New Zealand fan base is going to take umbrage. I've always said I lived in Australia. I was at a German bank in Sydney trading Kiwi, Kiwi dollar. It's not a country. I'm sorry. Danny, that's kind of like equities in Dallas. Exactly. So I digress. So what you're seeing is a deleveraging event. We're seeing it in every asset class out there. And the dollar is the wrecking ball right now. Now, EM countries, you've seen Sri Lanka and a few other little ones all saying, hey, we're going to struggle here because they finance their debt in dollars, right? And the Fed have swap lines and all these technical things that they can do to help. They haven't quite done all those things yet. So asset, you know, they're going to Stop buying their assets, as so many assets over the next couple of months. And then this meeting is 50 bips. And they're saying by June, 87%, 75 bips. And so I can't see right now how the dollar significantly comes off. And of course, we're going to approach very big technical levels. If you're an FX trader, you know nothing. You only look at the charts because this it's such a big market. You're dealing with countries. And so you're a dollar uh, approaching one. I haven't seen that since uh-huh. when I started, I think. It's interesting, Stuart. You mentioned that as the dollar goes higher, it acts as a wrecking ball, which is a great Taylor Swift song. I love T-Swizzle. She's, I mean, one of my favorite artists. This is, the, this is just, you know, the worst fast money joke. This has been going on for 10 years, hasn't it, guys? But it is true. It is a wrecking ball. And it's interesting. Since I've been alive, I was around during the Roosevelt administration. That would be Theodore, not FDR. And every administration, literally since the Trump administration, has talked about the want for a stronger dollar, stronger dollar policy. They just say that. I don't think they know what it means, but it sounds good. Trump was the first president in my memory, my lifetime, that actually talked about the dollar not wanting to have a strong dollar, saying how it hurt us as a nation. He happens to be right or happened to be right. But speak to that because a stronger dollar, although it's great for us as consumers, it is a wrecking ball to your point. Basically, the way the world is working from a heuristic high level is as the dollar comes off, we're effectively printing dollars. We have QE for the last, whatever, 10 years. Trump was right about that. Now, that didn't filter into the system until fiscal stimulus of 2020. And so that's the thing that's created some kind of inflation that's hitting food, oil, energy. And of course, Biden, I think, is claiming that it's Ukraine. So it's very unlikely that it is just one country. 
We're taping this on Thursday. We just got a read of Q1 GDP. It was a surprise contraction, 1.4% here. So this means that we are, what, guy, halfway? You can do this math, right? Mm -hmm. If two negative prints is a recession, if you have one, that's 50% of what you need. Right. So what Stuart's saying, and I think this is a really good point, is that any politician can blame it on. You've been saying it for years that inflation is all over the place. It's just not being recorded in the CPI and some of these other things, right? So here we are. We have these events that just kind of blew them all out. And so my question here is, you just said, Stuart, the dollar going through, it's literally, if you look at a five, six-year chart, that Dixie, and we get it. There's some stuff going on with the euro that's kind of funkier. I think we were all expecting to get readings about a European recession far before the bells started ringing about here. And the narrative is that the economy is still going gangbusters, but how do we have that sort of negative print in Q1? And so to me, it wouldn't take much to get us there. Now, we have to parse this out all the time. Just because the economy is doing one thing, that doesn't mean the market's going to do the other. But my question is to you, the stock market's down 10% on the year, the S&P 500. It was up 26% last year. Is 10% lower after everything that we know about all these headwinds? Is that discounting the potential for a recession here in the U.S. in 2022, which would mean that all these other parts of the world, given the dollar and given a whole host of other things, are going to be following us? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's done, right? So the Fed are hiking 50 into a slowing economy next week. We've got earnings, Amazon, Apple for the rest of the week. It looks like it's kind of clearing up into that. And I think, you know, who knows, 50-50, whether it's good or bad after those earnings. But what I do think is hiking 50, committing to it with the dollar above 100, 104, right, in the Dixie, that could go to 108, for example. We could see one in euro dollar. We could see 140, 150 in dollar yen. And all these hedging strategies, all these leverage trades are just going to unwind. And so you're going to start seeing spike lows and spike highs and all these things. And I think you look at equity fund manager guys who are basically holding on. They're holding on thinking the Fed is going to save us. The put's there. The put's not there. So how would they save us right now? I mean, they can't really because inflation's too high, right? So they do have to deal with it. They've got all these mandates. And of course, employment is so low. And they've called this out saying, we're going to crush the equity market. We're going to crush business. We're going to crush the demand side. There's going to be layoffs. We've already seen some of them, little trickles, little tinkles here and there. And that just means that earnings is going to be a re-rating as we're going forward from Q2 to Q3. It just looks ugly. Is this an S&P at 3,600? Is it 3,000? Have you been listening on the tape? Clearly he has. Guy Adami has a 37.50 target. By the way, you mentioned the mandates of the Federal Reserve. I'm not sure if you know, you haven't been in this country for all that long, but the dual mandate of our Federal Reserve is to ensure that both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ goes up every day. And until recently, they've been extraordinarily successful in that because they suck at everything else, Stuart. Hey, Stuart, how much of the volatility that we're seeing, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but the banks don't want to be in the limelight or the spotlight, I should say, after Dodd-Frank, the financial crisis, there's just less liquidity. We still see them step on these minefields all the time, whether it's Bill Huang and the family office lending money unknowingly or nickel or the whale trade that happened soon after the financial crisis. How much volatility now is because the banks are unwilling to play market maker? And I'm sure you played that role throughout your career, and it just feels like there's just much less liquidity there. Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's a real niche question. One of the things as I was leaving 2014 that I'd noticed, especially post-2008, like you said, with the Dodd-Frank uh, and all those other regulatory cap requirements, all those things that we had to do at the banks, it meant that there was way less, I'm talking 100x less appetite to take any kind of adverse flow. 
And also you weren't allowed to make money on it. So it's risk reward. Imagine a market that widens out crazily and you've got a trader sitting there going, well, I'll stick a bid in and I'll take some risk. Imagine the market only touches it and rallies or rips. And then the hindsight looking regulator goes, well, this trader just took all this money off this client. And so no one wanted that risk. And then the thing that you have in its place are computers. And so high-frequency trading, you have high-frequency liquidity management. Of course, those things have volatility triggers. When they don't make money, they stop making prices. And so you've just got this binary event where you have massive passive index funds in the equity market. You have digital market making, volatility triggers. And it's sort of like a recipe for disaster in many ways, or it could be. You know, I listened to OK Computer on March 23rd. By the way, I love that Metallica song, OK Computer. Stuart, I don't know if you're a fan. Was it Nirvana? Was it Nirvana? You found your match in going haywire on some of this stuff here. But you said that you thought inflation was going to be persistent. And I think a lot of people want to talk about peak inflation here. That's fine. And what I've said on this show and a couple other shows, I'll see your peak, and I'll give you two other words that start with P-E, pesky and persistent. Because we might have peaked, I don't know, but it ain't going away anytime soon. Thoughts, because I think you share those thoughts. Yeah, I think on a rate of change basis, it's going to be really hard for us to see inflation move a lot on that metric for the rest of the year. I think there's well-telegraphed, you'd see oil like 200 or 180 to see something crazy like that, which we probably don't see. But what we're going to see over the next five years, maybe even 10 years, is just persistently high inflation, financial repression. We have a debt-to-GDP ratio that needs some work here, and the inflation's doing its job. So you have a Fed that's going to talk tough and act a little dovish, and we're going to go through these cycles. And I think the back half of this year, it looks like now we're about to hit one of those cycles, which is recession less economic growth, well, negative growth. Who wanted negative growth? I think this is really important that I don't think there were too many economists who were expecting a negative print on this Q1. A lot of economists did not expect to see high single-digit CPI readings either, okay? So what is a soft landing at this point, given all the market volatility that we've had? We've seen, at least in the equity markets, we've seen massive valuation compression. And we're seeing the Fed... I don't know if you guys have seen this, and this is definitely in Danny's Twitter feed a little bit. Danny, have you seen all these anecdotal things? Somebody, a real estate agent in Southern Florida saying this, or this in North Carolina, or this in Texas. In Florida. Are you starting to see this on Twitter? We're starting to see some of these signs that maybe things are cooling down. And I guess part of my question is, how do we get to a soft landing? How does that happen for a Fed that, as obviously to Guy's point, has already kind of lost control of the narrative? They had their pedal in the metal for way too long. What does a soft landing look like for the economy and what do the markets do? A soft landing, if I could separate the stock market from the economy, as you just mentioned before, I don't expect a soft landing for the stock market. I think people got excited today and the reason the market's up, maybe I'm wrong, is you had this negative print on GDP of 1.4% and maybe think, oh, this 25 bips is already working. The expectation is already working. They're going to take their foot off of the gas. Meanwhile, consumer spending was still pretty strong at 0.7%. But I've said this all along, and I think Stuart just talked about what it's going to be, which is stagflation. But this economy and the corporate and the consumer cannot handle higher rates. This has been the biggest blissful period of time in market history for having someone that's buying trillions and trillions of dollars in front of you and behind you, up to $9 trillion now in a balance sheet. You just don't unwind something like that or even stop buying something like that without massive impact. And so we're seeing it in financial instruments. That's one thing. We're starting to see it in the economy. People are actually changing their spending habits. They're spending actually less. So there is an impact there going on. And I think in a nutshell, I don't think there is going to be a real soft landing. 
But I do believe that wages going higher of people that aren't in the stock market that hopefully can take on this inflation a little bit. It's maybe soft for them, but I think for investors and stuff, it's not. And I think we're going to stagflation, Stuart. And I would love to get your thoughts on that because we've kind of been describing it for the last five to 10 minutes. I think stagflation is a risk in Europe probably first. I think Dan touched upon that. You'd expect Europe to go through all this first, and they are not, which is weird, right? Maybe they're lying about their data. <laughs> but yeah, so stagflation is clearly the worst outcome, worse than recession, which is obviously for any listeners, high inflation with no growth. And so equity markets don't do well. Bonds don't do well. <laughs> Wages don't rise that much because you don't have economic power to push as a worker because there's unemployment. And so it's kind of like the worst outcome. Now, in the 70s, we had it. And Volcker was able to get over it because he could hike to whatever it was, 17%. Some, I wasn't born. I was born in 77, guys. So maybe Dan was there. Guy was in the market. Guy was definitely. I was, I was absolutely. I was crushing it. You knew Alan Greenspan himself. Yeah, yeah. He was his junior. And so in the 70s, you could raise. And he was given. This is the weird thing, right? So Volcker was given carte blanche to do that by the president. And so America was saying, as a world leader, we're willing to crush domestic demand and all this other stuff to stop stagflation, to kill it. And look after our own country, which will look after the world. We have very different demographics. Debt to GDP can't do it. You can't raise to 17%. Everything explodes. We have a monetary policy reset, which was what I was talking about in our last podcast. So, Well, let me stop you for a second, Stuart, because I'm glad you brought that up. Debt to GDP. I interviewed Mike Novogratz in January, and I knew this, and he said it. Debt to GDP in this country, depending on what numbers you use, is about 135%. No developed nation, I think, in the history of mankind has been able to dig out from that kind of hole. Can you speak to that? Because that's a really important point. Yeah, you can't do it. You talked about soft landings. You've got to run inflation high but not untethered from expectations, meaning everyone just panics. And you're robbing savers and everyone who's got a balance sheet. So good luck, right? Like you've got to do that for like five, ten years. And so we saw that in the 40s as well. I sound like a historian, sorry. But you do end up being like that as a macro trader. So stagflation this time is way more dangerous, an order of magnitude more dangerous for this country than it was in the 70s. And it's going to be much harder than it was in the 40s to get this under control. And that's a function of not only debt to GDP, but a Fed's balance sheet that is, well, was going to get to 10 trillion. Now it's probably going to flatline around nine, but they haven't even started reducing that yet. There's a couple of outcomes, and I don't want to sound weird. No, sound weird. I sound weird all the time. The great thing about the word weird, the word itself is weird, because it's I before E except after C, or when sounded like way is a neighbor and slay, except that weird isn't any of that. So it makes it freaking weird, please. This is the result of a two-martini lunch. Do you remember those when you were an FX trader? I don't drink, period. Anyway, please. Fridays were the ones that you didn't come back on. You left your suit jacket on the back, so your trading manager thought you were coming back. You remember those days. I forgot the question. What was that? Weird. You said it's weird. You said two things. You got to pay attention. Cheapest thing you can do. You said a number of these outcomes in there weird. I don't want to say it. I said, say it, please. Tim Fallhat is on now. So monetary policy reset. That's really what this ends up in because we've painted ourselves into the corner and what do we do? You mentioned the dollar a couple of times. Like, why does it go up? It's basically paying down debt. We have a lot of debt in the world. We're financing the world because the world's commodity currency is the dollar and all the debt is financed in the dollar. And so when things are bad, everyone calls their debt. And what happens? There's a demand for dollars. So there's not enough dollars in the world, and we do all these things to try and help it when there's a downturn. And the Fed are trying to walk a really fine line here, and they think they can do it, and I hope they do it, because the reset is going to be ugly and painful 
and new. What do we do? Do we go to a basket of currencies? Is it China-Russia thing? Or do we add some Bitcoin in there? Is it SDRs? It's interesting when you mentioned the last period that we had stagflation and you said that interest rates got into the high teens or so. Deutsche Bank's economist had a report out earlier this week saying that he sees Fed funds getting to 5 to 6% and a deep recession. And the 5 to 6% Fed fund rate should do the trick. Now, put all this together with that Fed balance sheet. Listen, I've been on the camp, and you've probably forgotten more of this than I'll ever know, that the Fed can't finance that $9 trillion plus balance sheet. That's the weird part, I think. And that's probably how you get to a deep recession. I think one of the things that's also interesting about market participants here is that I came up in the business in the late 90s where everybody knew a bubble was inflating in the stock market. But there was the Asian crisis. There was the Russian crisis. There was long-term capital. It was not easy. I mean, there were plenty of warnings that things could go haywire. And then what happened was the Fed, and this is why we started this conversation, with the last time the Fed raised 50 basis points, at a meeting was May of 2000. They were trying to tamp down an asset bubble. They didn't think that they were going to have economy on the precipice. And that's why I kind of brought up that anecdotal stuff about real estate. I was at a, a Ranger game last night with a friend of mine who said that he refinanced two of his homes last year at 2.5% for 30 years. Honestly, in my world, when somebody says something as asinine as that, that's called a humble brag. I refinanced only two of my homes last night. I mean, seriously? I mean, really? But here's the deal. 30-year mortgages, 5%. You do the math on that. So if that person got an adjustable, doesn't do that, think about the cash flow. I mean, this is the problem that sovereigns are going to have if they have to raise rates to tamp down inflation. And that's where you get the weird stuff. Everyone's on variable. All credit cards, all these mortgages. At current, we're a mobile first financial services technology company. Now, hold on a second. You rushed that a little. It's like George Clooney and Brad Pitt in the elevator. Do it again, because you did it nicely, but you rushed it just to tell. At current, we're a financial services technology company and not a bank. So we see some of this stuff. Obviously, inflation's biting. It's been biting probably since Q3 last year, especially for the cohorts that we have. But just looking at rents, looking at mortgage payments, things like this, fuel, a discretionary spend is down a lot, and people are trying to survive. We've seen a stay of execution. That's a horrible phrase, actually. Sorry about that. But we've seen people survive in March and February because of the tax refund season. And so I think some of the data is being bubbled up a little bit. It's been lifted April, May, June. I don't have a lot of confidence that the personal balance sheet of America is getting better. So, Dan, I'm sure the guy you were with last night had a vest on, <laughs> one of those zipper-up vests with a long sleeve shirt on big problems that he's got, but he's not the one that's going to have the problem. But Danny, he wasn't whining. No, no, I'm not saying he was whining, but he's going to be fine. He just said, I got 30-year money on two assets in places that I only know are going to go up at 2.5%, and now suckers who want to refinance or whatever, they can't refinance because the rates are much higher. They haven't been this high, what, in 20 years or so? No, but Dan, what I'm saying is the people that are really impacted blue-collar, middle-class people are the ones that are really going to impact it. And there was a Gallup poll that had just come out that said, your share of Americans listing inflation is the most significant household financial problem reached a record high. In a Gallup poll, it says people in all income groups were more negative about their personal finances compared to last year with inflation hitting 8.5% in March, fastest pace in 40 years. More people said their financial situation was worsening than it was improving. And so that's the stagflation, right? And all this kind of comes together. And Stuart having a platform or these products, he can see credit card rates starting to move higher, these floating rates. And Stuart, I'd love to get your thoughts because I I talked about this. I probably lost 95% of the audience on it. But this whole move from LIBOR to SOFR, 
with all these financial products. I don't know if you've gone in the weeds on this thing or you think this is going to be an easy transition. You just lost 95% of your co-hosts on this one. But Stewart knows it. Not that Stewart was rigging LIBOR in his day, but Stewart was definitely knew oh, what was happening. No, dude. no. But he was in the trenches. I got no comments. <laughs> Statute of limitations is over. Don't worry about it. Sorry. Stuart, any thoughts on that transition and just in general and financial products and credit in general? Yes. So from a credit, not from a LIBOR perspective, which is a great, and no one was found guilty. Exactly. Yeah, right. Because it's in a very efficient interbank process. I have to put all these clauses in. I feel like I'm tap dancing around minefield. Yeah. So credit, basically credit from a 650. I mean, you can see the public data in any company that has credit cards as well. So this can back it up. People are filling the inflation gap because they're losing purchasing power because of inflation. They can't afford as much. And they're filling that gap with credit. And you can see it, like I said, in a bunch of these metrics. For let's call it a blue collar worker, it's probably going to be okay for a certain extent, I think. But I think if you look at from a political view, which I was trying to say, Biden probably lost those votes because of inflation and fuel and all those things. And now because of what the Fed are doing to crush that inflation, you lose all the white collar votes because you're crushing demand in the equity market. So that's not great. In terms of credit and how that goes forward, I think for the most part this year, it'd be okay. But into 23, 24, it's called vintages in the business. I don't know how it goes going forward. But these vintages, just to bring up a product that I know you've looked at, just because you have to because of what you're doing now, but this buy now, pay later group. Vintages, these are 30, 60 day old vintages that are going bad. Obviously, the negative selection for the consumer is going to choose that button to not have to pay a lot now and pay it later. And that is one of these last in, first out, to use an accounting term, product that I think we see that is a product of what the Fed did. you have any thoughts on that whole sector? Because we've talked about that on the show ad nauseum. Yeah, you're right. For the macro view, in terms of countries, Sri Lanka's like having problems. In terms of products that are fragile, they're having problems. And so the Fed's starting to do this thing. The dollar's going up. We're deleveraging globally. We're deleveraging locally. We're deleveraging personally, hopefully. And not that guy who's refinancing houses. He's probably buying Tesla and ARC. But we're going to get to Tesla and ARC. Don't worry about it. There's not an on-the-tape podcast that goes by that we don't. Made it 28 minutes without even mentioning it. Yeah, so I think the fragile products, buy now, pay later, a lot of them, They didn't go through credit checking. They didn't expect the money back. And it's buy now, pay never. And some of that is coming true. And so it was a growth at all costs at the height of the bubble, really, last year, the valuation bubble. So you're seeing that churn happen this year in some of these products. And they're using these rent-a-banks, which I know these Cross River and all these names, like three or four big banks that are based in Utah, not a bank. Anyway. Here's one guy. You've been saying this for a long time, and you and I have been doing Fast Money together for 10 years. I probably heard you say this. And you're never saying it when the market's down. You're saying it in the lead up to maybe what might be some sort of pullback is that the negative wealth effect in the stock market, even if you're invested or not, really has an effect on consumer psyche in a way. And so that goes back to that question I had earlier about what is the market pricing in? Now that we have this data that we could be halfway to a recession, we know things change when the word recession is out there, when the word bear market is out there, and it really does weigh on consumer sentiment. Yeah, Stuart, one thing that I've thought for a while, and I'm not suggesting I'm correct, but I've thought this, that all the S&P 500 is, is an overlay of consumer sentiment. And 73% of this economy here is driven by people buying shit. And people buy shit when they feel good about things. And when do they feel good about things? When they see the stock market going up every day. Regardless as to whether or not they own a stock, they view the stock market as some sort of metric for everything being okay. And that's when people buy things. I'll tell you, when the market goes down in a precipitous fashion, as it did in October of 2018, 
up until Christmas Eve when Dan Nathan, the market went down. 19.9. In a straight line, consumer sentiment literally stopped on a dime. And that's when people say, wait a second, what's going on? So that negative wealth effect that Dan Nathan is talking about, that's alive and well. So if the stock market were to go down in a very significant way over the course of a couple of weeks, I think you're going to see exactly that. Consumer spending is going to stop. And the ancillary effect, the knock-on effects are significant, Stuart. I love that analogy. I think it's right. What was the term? Short-term voting machine, long-term weighing machine? Maybe it's just a long-term voting machine. <laughs> Maybe it is. I think it's right. There's a ton of technical studies on basically sentiment and how it's driven the S&P 500 or all those index funds and all that other stuff. It's reflexive. It's going to feed back on itself. You've seen from a tech lens, from a corporate tech lens, we've seen Facebook obviously not do too well. Meta, sorry. No, you can say Facebook. Absolutely. You say Facebook. I hate it when they change shit like that. F them. It's Facebook to me. I'm on a TV show every night, and I say Facebook. His mama name him Clay. I'm going to call him Clay for you coming to America fans. We've never touched on this. Did you see that Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Block, formerly Square, now changed his title from CEO to Blockhead? No, he didn't. Yes, he did. I, I That's sort of, a fact. I, I sort of dig that, actually. Do you? Yeah, I sort of do. So the clay thing is out the window? You just like- I sort of get a kick out of it. First of all, you guys sort of look alike. You yeah, and Jack a little bit. Stewart. I mean, that's a compliment, by the way. Beard notwithstanding, the whole thing you got going on. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, Blockhead's a great... I think Elon Musk started it on his CFO, right? They did that crazy stuff. They changed their names in Tesla. And- no, well, you know what? It started out... Jerry Yang at Yahoo was like the head Yahoo or something right. like that. So that it oh, really it goes yeah. back. It yeah. Goes back. We, is that a good co- company to be in? Uh, Yahoo? Yeah. Uh, you know, Apollo just bought Yahoo. <laughs> they did. I mean, a private equity just bought Yahoo. Who's your favorite Apollo in? Is it Apollo Creed? Creed. <laughs> Are you a Creed guy? 13. 13. Apollo 13. What's Land- that? I don't even oh, the know movie. That the movie with Land- Ted Hanks. No, Land on the Tom Moon. Hanks. Oh, wasn't Apollo 13 Tom Hanks? Yeah, but he didn't talk about Apollo. He just said 13. Is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about landing on the moon. Matt, you said my favorite Apollo. But we didn't. They didn't make it to the moon. Oh, he meant his. Oh, that one blew up. Yeah. No, no. They're trouble. We're going to have to cut. We're going to have to cut this whole bit, right? That's all right. I mean, um, (laughs) all right. So back to Meta. What, up 18% right here? The stock was down 55% into their Q1 earnings. It had that 26% gap in early February after they reported their disappointing Q4 earnings. This thing was an absolute mess. We had that mess of Netflix last week. It was a one-day 35% gap, and I think a lot of antennas were up this week into some of these reports. We had what we call, Stuart, I don't know if you've heard this, the F-MAGA complex, the Facebook, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, and the Amazon, all reporting this week. Tonight, by the time the listener will be listening to this. We will have Apple and Amazon's results out here. Let's just talk about this here a little bit because down 26% last quarter for the meta, up 17, 18% today. Danny, do you think this is an efficient market here that we have quarter over quarter, this sort of performance? No, I think it's destructive. Like we say on all these stocks, people can lose $1,000 trading meta going from two to 300 back and forth over a period of two to three months. It's right back where it was a month ago because they made one metric. Yes, they beat on earnings, but because the daily active users were a little bit better than expected, you moved, you send this thing up 18%. I mean, listen, it was due for a dead cat bounce, as we say. And there's a lot of those stocks that are kind of out there. PayPal's another one. It's another one that's kind of bouncing. Things get sold and sold and sold. Look for an excuse to buy. That's not a bad sign. It's not bearish per se, and maybe it should happen, but 
Well, it's bearish from the standpoint that if you're an investor and you see this sort of price action, it's not the sort of thing that says, welcome to the pool. Come on in here. Absolutely. I know that, Stuart, for instance, you guys have a lot of 20-somethings and and moving your way higher as far as demographics. And we've heard this notion of this new investor over the last few years. They've never seen a bear market. They never saw high interest rates. They never saw anything in a way. And I'm just curious, do you guys have demand for investment products? Do people feel like they have adequate tools to look at these markets? And we bring up this sort of volatility because it's really hard. There was a time when this looked really enticing to people who were at home, who had fiscal stimulus, who had apps, gambling apps, basically on their phones. It's much less so now that we've seen so many stocks, hundreds of stocks that are down 50, 60, 70% from their highs. And the same goes for a lot of those altcoins and stuff like that. So there's been a lot of money from retail who maybe didn't really know what they were doing, just go poof. And it doesn't come back. So like Facebook has a silver lining for us in some way, because what's happening is obviously the volatility around their stock price hurts their employees. They've had an engineering freeze, I think, I could be corrected here, for the first time in history. But the last thing you do as Facebook or have ever done, Zuckerberg has ever done, is mess with the engineering base because it's an engineering tech company. All of a sudden, they're saying freeze for everything other than very, very senior engineers. What does that do? Well, the whole tech sector gets scared a lot from that. For us, it enables us to hire. (laughs) There's a down market ripple effect when the big dogs start laying off. That's right. And then are you seeing that with Twitter right now too, since Musk made his bid a couple weeks ago? Yeah, they've got to freeze on everything from strategy all the way down, which makes sense. And of course, there's many other companies that are not being public or forthright in their hiring freezes, right? They're just sort of dragging their feet. So if you're still moving forward, you're still growing. We're coming from a lower base. We're not a public company and all that stuff. It's really helpful for us to hire really, really good people now. So that is, okay, one silver lining among a lot of other bad things. Uh, If you're an investor, you're typically just buying. You're probably not getting out. Take my parents or my grandparents. And so not financial advice, but when you see volatility like this, you don't want to get in. Well, the poster child for this is Robinhood, right? And they're going to report tonight, speaking of other companies. We know they're laying people off. That leaked in the journal the other day. Already, again, talk about last in, first out. That, to me, is the temperature gauge of retail investor that Dan just mentioned about people getting crushed. They're losing tons of money, those investors. So there's not as many assets that they're holding. Therefore, they're laying people off. That's one of the quickest moves backwards in the history of markets in terms of a company that came in with such high fanfare and is now seemingly shrinking. And I think we're going to get a look in that tonight. It was a meme stock machine. Guys said this, and I think this was one of the things in a, in a raging bull market. You hear all of these expressions like, don't mix up brains for a bull market, and the list goes on and on. And Guy would say this all the time. What would you say? The only thing innovative about Robinhood was what? Was the name and their hair. I mean, what was innovative about Robinhood? I mean, they're doing the same shit that everybody else did. The guy's got great freaking hair, and the name is pretty cool. Short of that, There's nothing different about what they've been doing. Yeah, and so that's the thing I was going to say. You built a financial tech platform during the same time period that they built it, but that thing's gone the way of the dodo because what's very clear is that what they innovated on was cost. So they went to zero commission trading, that sort of thing. But the platform wasn't anything particularly innovative. Yeah, I think the only pushback I'd say is they innovated on compliance of accessibility to options. So, oh, because well, it was a one-click option. Was, <laughs> yeah, that worked out real well. That's not really a pushback. He's actually piling on a little bit. But do you agree? And Danny brought up the point about buy now, pay later. That was something I think Danny said on this pod a million times. That's been around for thousands of years. But it was just put on a digital platform, and that was meant to be innovation, justifying 30 times sales because they were growing fast because it was new to market. And so that's where we spend a lot of time yelling and screaming about that sort of stuff. That's not real innovation. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I can see being older. It's hard to look at the young kids. <laughs> Look at the young kids innovating. No, but you're right. There's no lay away from the 90s and credit cards being reinvented. Everything has a new format. We went from branches or in-person to the internet, which was web, and then we went to mobile, and now we're about to go into web three. And so there's a different format. There's a different economic and platform opportunities. There's different network effects. And very often, the end value is either a cost saving or some kind of onboarding or access. And so if you squint... There is similarities throughout the ages, right? Like there's been currencies for thousands of years. There's been credit for thousands of years. Cryptocurrencies and Web3 is another iteration of this stuff. So I think you can be both right and wrong in the sense of, yes, there are core things that they are doing, but I think they're delivered in different ways, which do have some kind of additional value or additional network effect. I'm not going to add much to this conversation, but I'll say this. You took a shot at me on age, which is great, but somehow with the British accent, it's like I found myself smiling. Like if some paisan said it to me, I'd knock him out. But you said it, it was fantastic. I love it. The accent always sort of like makes everything sound better. It's beautiful. Stick around. When we come back, we're going to get Stuart's take on crypto and gold. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. So wait, you just brought up crypto and you said right and wrong. And so I wanted to throw this out here. So some of the smartest people I know in finance and tech think that crypto web three is the next thing. And then some of the smartest people I know in finance and tech think it's a bunch of bullshit. So weigh in here because you left Morgan Stanley in 2014. You were running currency trading. You read the Bitcoin white paper. You're now co-founder of Current who worked with you, put it in front of you, and you just caught the bug. It spoke to you a little bit. And so here we are. One of the things I think it's really interesting is that year over year, whatever bull case you were going to make in late April of 2021, you could make the same bull case now, but the price is the exact same year over year. That's a fact. But it went to 69000 from forty, and now it's back. Back at 40. It was as low as 30. This is Bitcoin, obviously. And ETH has had the same sort of ranges. We've seen tremendous interest and investment in layer twos, right, on top of all this stuff. So that's not really accounting for that in a way. Talk to us a little bit about how you've worked that into the ethos of current and what you guys believe about crypto and the sorts of things that you want to offer your clients. And it's not just what you think they may want in the future, but it's also what you and Trevor believe about it going forward. Yeah. I mean, you can get really philosophical quick, can't you? The, well, you can. Um, yeah. <laughs> with crypto in general, I think the overarching narrative has been from the beginning, and it may have got lost in the messy middle, was that this is power to the people. And so it's censorship proof by being decentralized. And what does that mean? Well, you saw financial censorship in Canada 
So if you protested, you got your bank account frozen, even if you donated to some of those causes. We've seen that across the world in other countries that are not Western democracies all the time. We're seeing it now maybe in social media. It's been hidden, at least in the US, but there is free speech repression and things like that. Who owns the algorithm? Is it open? Can we see what you're doing? And so these are big industry or sort of human trends from central rent-seeking entities like governments and big corporations controlling the narrative. Now that we all have the data and we have more mobility and more technology to say, hey, and a voice to say, hey, this is not cool. We want part of that. We don't want to be just working all our lives. We want part of that network. We are part of the network. We should benefit from it. And so that's the overarching narrative. Now, this goes counter to governmental control. So at some point, philosophically, there's going to be a problem. Maybe not in America because it's sort of anti-government, being an English guy, July the 4th. Um, so, <laughs> But isn't it also we're pretty well banked here? That's one of the things that I find really interesting about Elon Musk's bid for Twitter. He's doing this in the guise of free speech. But other than maybe some hate groups and a former president who used the platform to incite a violent insurrection on our capital because he didn't like the outcome of the election or the Russians using these platforms to kind of subvert an election. I mean, for the most part, do people really feel like they're being suppressed? Now, financially, I get it. But I don't know here in America unless you do something wrong-ish. I'm kind of broadening out a little bit because some people think that this is a well-orchestrated plan by Elon and Jack to bring Twitter into the light, a higher sense of consciousness. That's what Jack tweeted the other night. It all sounds like a bunch of BS to me. So I'm just curious your take on that because censorship resistance is the main pillar of the bull case for Bitcoin, but I'm not sure it is for social media. Maybe it should. That's really where the argument is right now, right? So, are we arguing? No, no. The, 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 the people. The people on Twitter are arguing that. Which is kind of meta, guy. So the people on Twitter are arguing that is the definition of meta. Maybe. So Jack started two very successful centralized platforms, one in finance and one in social media. And he claims with his beard, which is longer than yours, he claims that he wants to tear it all down. He wants the financial system open for the people and he wants the town square, the social thing open for the people. But that actually doesn't really jive too well with capitalism because remember he started that whole thing, who owns Web3? Remember that? And he got both of those companies started with VC Capital. And how do you do it otherwise? Oh, do you just do it? Does Web3 fix that? Well, we almost fixed it in 2017 with ICOs. Remember that? When the SEC. So you're being sarcastic, listener. You can't see it. I swear I'm being real about it. So we had basically Kickstarter for the world um, with, with ICOs, which they were obviously securities and they should have been following securities law. But you saw the power of that. You could raise billions of dollars. The white paper was effectively your pitch deck and all the rest of it. And so But this is essentially a DAO. I mean, right? Like so yeah. but those were more centralized ish. Yeah. I mean, we're in the experimental phase. The main ethos was or is banks screwed everyone over in two thousand eight. The governments keep spending money. The middle is not voting for them. It's the fringes that, you know, are making all the noise. And so there's no representation of either control or power or my money. And so this is about technology delivering that. Now I'm not saying the purest view, anarchist view, is that you know there's no government and all the rest of it. I think that's wrong. That Everyone needs to play together nicely. But maybe the government is thinner. Maybe the government is more efficient. Maybe the government is plugged into some of these blockchains. Maybe the government needs a blockchain itself because that's public data. They have a lot of public data. There's a lot of public accounts. 
Why isn't that on a blockchain? All right. So this week, Fidelity announced that they're going to allow 401k customers. They have 23,000 accounts that they service. They're going to allow them to put cryptocurrency into their tax-deferred savings account. What does that mean to you when the way you think about your product roadmap? Is this going to accelerate adoption of these products? Because they're obviously one of the biggest financial services companies in the world. Yeah, Fidelity are really forward-looking. If you follow Jurian on Twitter, I think he's director of growth at Fidelity. He's very Bitcoin forward. They're a Bitcoin forward and very technical company. I don't know them personally, by the way, so I'm not shilling them. But yes, it's really, really important that they've done that. And I think Bitcoin, you mentioned the prices and all the rest of it. As a trader, I think that the volatility is really there right now. It's being crushed to 18-month lows. It's about to break out. The way I see it, given on investment advice, the way I see it compared to correlation to risk assets is probably down first, but then up a lot after. And I think the Bitcoin community is kind of holding their breath, waiting for a buying opportunity. Maybe it's a flash in the pan or whatever, but that's kind of how I'm feeling, especially in stagflation. It will do much, much better than most other assets. Here's my thought about crypto, Bitcoin specifically. I think it was born out of this fear that fiat currency, central banks were running amok For the first time in the history of Bitcoin, you have a Federal Reserve that is trying to be the adults in the room, right? They're trying to be responsible. And I think one of the reasons Bitcoin has gone from 68,000 to 40 is exactly that. The bull case for me for crypto, and I could be wrong, it's just my thought. If the Fed were to blink for whatever reason and go back down to their ways of doing things, Bitcoin goes from 40,000 to 100,000 like that. And that's me snapping my fingers. I agree. Yeah, and there's a good shot that they're going to try. If we don't have a monetary policy reset, which is like a 10% chance, the chances are we go to 3,750 to 3,600. We're stopping at a one, one and a quarter, one and a half Fed funds rate. Everything's tanking. We're in recession pre-midterms. And then the Fed's like, look, we've done enough. Demand destruction's here. Everything's cool. Inflation comes off on a rate of change basis for H2. And then they start talking about, hey, maybe we don't stop those asset well, purchases. Maybe, you know. Well, some people think it could happen sooner than later. I mean, there's been calls that the Fed are going to do 50, then 50. And then they can say, listen, that was it. We're seeing kind of things plateau here a little bit. And maybe that makes sense. I think they have to normalize rates so they can drop them again. I mean, it's that simple. Stuart, where does gold fit in all this? If you like Bitcoin and you've traded the markets for decades, you must have an opinion. I hopefully like gold at this point, especially if the dollar, if people lose trust in the system. Yeah, it's very similar. I think gold... Gold's interesting still in the sense of Bitcoin is blockchain where everyone knows what everyone's doing. Gold is like cash, right? It has all the properties or Bitcoin has all the properties of gold. It came first, but it's sort of unrecorded in some ways. There is definitely a different – and it's physical, right? So you don't need electricity. So there's definitely use cases for gold outside of Bitcoin. But for sure, Bitcoin has the accessibility of it. Everyone has a mobile phone, has basically displaced some of the demand. So if you look at all the numbers over the last, what, 10 years, you can see there's a sort of finite – a number of dollars and people in the world that believe this idea of Bitcoin or gold, and they sort of flock into Bitcoin first. I think the dollar goes up a little bit more. Gold probably underperforms. And at some point, central banks are going to, well, they're already scooping gold like there's no tomorrow, right? Because we all know if the dollar doesn't make it, and we do start devaluing over the next five years. Oh, man, that's another podcast for another <laughs> time, because I'm telling you now, and I want this is the last thing I'm going to say, and then Dan's going to wrap You remember when crude oil went to negative $40 a barrel. And the reason why is because there was no place to put the shit. There was no place to store it. And it was better economically to sell it at minus 40 than it was to – you couldn't take delivery. There's no place to go. I'm telling you, Stuart, as sure as I sit here in front of you, there's going to come a time and place where the exact opposite happens, where people say, 
I want delivery of my gold, and there ain't enough of it to go around. I'm just putting that out there, and we'll have another podcast and another time. I want you to watch me what I do here. I want you to stew on that, Stu. That was good. Well, on that note, listen, Stuart Sop, CEO, founder of Current and sponsor of OK Computer. You can check it out in the podcast stores, people. And we had a great conversation on many of these sorts of topics. This was back on March 23rd, as Guy Adami said. Well, thank you, Danny Moses. Thank you, Guy Adami. Thanks, Stuart Sop, for being here. And we will see you guys all next week. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.